Today on episode number 375 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Betsy Berry is back and she joins me for a conversation about why to use a course workload estimator and oh so much more that won't fit in a podcast episode title. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. After receiving her Ph.D. in 2009, Betsy spent five years teaching philosophy and religious studies at Lake Forest College, Marymount, Manhattan College, and Rice University. When Rice launched its Center for Teaching Excellence in 2014, she was appointed a founding assistant director. In 2016, she was promoted to associate director, and in 2018, she began her current position at Wake Forest. Trained as a comparative ethicist, Betsy's research and teaching interests lie at the intersection of moral philosophy, political theory, and the history of religion. Her disciplinary scholarship compares Catholic and Muslim arguments about the nature of law within diverse societies, and more recently she has explored related questions in the philosophy of education. More specifically, Betsy's been thinking about the nature of professorial authority within the context of politically diverse classrooms. Betsy, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. It's so great to be back. As I shared with you before we got started, the Teaching in Higher Ed was the first podcast I ever did. Multiple years ago, I can't remember exactly how long ago, but we talked about student evaluations and I loved it and I'm so glad to be back. I'm so glad you're back, too. And the number of times that I have referenced the student evaluations is and, it, and it, it's almost like when you have that perfect collection of books on your bookshelf. <laughs> I feel like we have a really good collection about course evaluations because mm. we, we need to know the evidence behind it, the research, some of the bias built into it. And then I cried. I have not cried many times on the podcast twice, I believe, to my knowledge. And then I heard from so many people that, oh, my gosh, to hear from someone who understands how painful that these can be sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then we also had one that looked a little bit more at because of the bias. What are mm-hmm. other ways that we might think about evaluating our own teaching or, you know, peer evaluating others teaching? It was yeah. really good. So I'm so glad that you were here and I'm so glad that you're back. So today we're going to be looking at a whole bunch of topics, but a lot of them, they look at, to me, things, Betsy, that were sort of amplified. The issues got amplified with the pandemic, but they were there all along. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about, so we're, we're ultimately going to get, spoiler alert, everybody, we're going to be getting to the point of talking about a tool that you and, and your team developed to help us with these challenges. But before we even get there, could you talk about the challenges before the pandemic hit that made you realize that this kind of a tool was necessary? And then we'll talk a little bit about how the pandemic changed that even more, and then we'll mm. get to the tool. Yeah, sure. So I'd like to say that 
that, uh, and I sort of, I actually wrote a blog post during the pandemic about workload that sort of struck a chord and a lot of people were really interested in, and we'll come back to that in a bit. But I, I started that blog post by talking about my just general interest in time. I'm very interested in time management, and mm-hmm. this is separate from my teaching and learning interest. I'm very interested in time management because uh, particularly those of us who work in teaching centers, and when I transitioned from being a faculty member to working in a teaching center, I had many, many, many projects that I was working on, and I had a trouble sort of keeping track and keeping up with all the work, and I just felt like I, I never got anything done. I was just, I felt like I was wasting time, and I was curious where all my time was going, so I started actually time tracking. I did it for one semester. I was just kind of fascinated by it. At the same time as that was happening when I first moved into teaching centers, I also, as a humanist, was always very interested in this question that we got it as a, in the first, usually in new faculty orientation, we would often get this question from new faculty, which is how much reading should I assign? How much reading is appropriate? And I used to ask that myself as a humanist because I was mostly assigning a lot of reading. And I never felt satisfied with the answer that I gave. I never, you know, I would usually say like maybe one of three things I would say, you know, it's hard to know based on the type of reading, you know, it's, but that's not really an answer. Right. (laughs) And then I would say, check with what your department's doing. Like what's the norm there. But of course, departments may not doing be doing things that are appropriate. So I didn't feel very confident about that. And I just, I, I, I was, I felt like I didn't have a good answer to that. I was also very interested in the impact of time and how we don't, we are not good estimators of time. And so I got really frustrated with my answer for multiple reasons. And I thought, gosh, there has to be research out there somewhere about like how much students can read. And that's what I was explicitly thinking about reading when I began, like how much time does it, and not just students, how much time does it take us to read a certain number of pages? You know, and there's a lot of literature on speed reading and other things out there. And in fact, most of the psychologists will say that actually all that stuff about speed reading is not well-founded, that you can't ah. actually speed read. So I actually started diving in. It was one summer, so I had a little bit more time to read. So I started diving into the research on reading. So partly for myself to be selfish of like how much time, because I actually found in my own time tracking that I spent a lot of time reading. That took more time than I felt like it was taking. So I was very interested in this and they actually have some estimates in the reading literature about what the maximums are. Of course, there's a range. And I started doing back of the envelope calculations. And I was like, oh, like, what does that mean? Like, what can I give an answer to our faculty who asked this question? And I was doing the back of the envelope and I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we had like some tool to just automatically calculate this for you? And I'm still, again, just thinking about reading. And so then I, I'm not a coder. I'm not like a computer person, but I got online and I was like, I bet you there's a way I could make it in Excel and then put it on the web. And like, so I was thinking of all this not very elegant way of doing it. And I was trying to learn, like there was something like JavaScript online that you could do to make it work. And it was just crazy. And my husband, who is a quantitative social scientist who also does programming and R, et cetera, sort of walked in the room and was like, whoa, stop doing that. <laughs> stop. Like, There's an easier way I can show you some software, our studio that could make it in shiny. And he's like, that's a cool project. Project. So we just worked together that summer and started talking to other faculty about, well, what were the things you would want to know? So then we started talking about papers and how many pages and how would we design it? And so we got some feedback on design. And then by the end of the summer, we just sort of put it out there in the world, you know, not just open source, whatever, you can use it. And tons of people responded. And now many people are using it in their research and has been clearly a need that people are very curious about this question. So for me, it was like, I just wanted to be able to answer the question, but it turns out it's been fascinating. And we could talk more about whatever you're interested in, Bonnie, how people have used the workload estimator, even though it just started as a kind of way to give guideposts for those of us who are thinking about how many pages do I assign in my syllabus? <laughs> What's a reasonable amount? 
I'm chuckling so hard right now. In our family, our children who are now seven and nine, a frequent thing that happens at dinnertime conversations is this. Wait, what? Wait, wait, what? Wait, what? And so <laughs> I'm laughing so hard because my brain is about to explode ah. right now because I'm thinking, okay, wait, 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 wait. Can we go back? And even though this is not about the workload estimator, but I feel like sometimes on this podcast lately, I keep becoming victim of realizing, oh, you just... You bought into that little myth hook, line and sinker. Sometimes just when you think you've like escaped that as a human being, like now I now I won't fall for myths anymore. So growing up, a family member who I won't say who it was because I don't want to embarrass the person, but was really into the learning how to speed read. And the person does read really, really fast. I mean, sure. unbelievably fast. So could you before we come back to the workload estimator, which is the whole reason you're here? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's really so basically, of course, like we can read at any speed. So and that's what and then I can share in the resources for this podcast, some of the sort of essential summary articles about oh, this too, about that. reading in particular. Good, good, good. So we can, of course, read as quickly. And there are all sorts of ways to read quickly. But what they have found is that after a certain point, that as your speed goes up, your comprehension goes down almost perfectly. Mm. So the faster you go, the less comprehension you have. Okay. Because what a lot of speed readers say is you can learn it just as well, read it just as closely that quickly. And what they say is that's not possible, mm -hmm. that you cannot read it as closely when you are speed reading. So I guess, so I, I don't know if that's a, if that sort of challenges the view that your, your family member had, but essentially that you're going to lose comprehension the faster you go after a certain point. Because for anyone who's not seen the workload calculator, which or estimator, which of course, I feel like everyone has, but I know not everyone has, but there are two elements. So there is yeah. the the number of words, but also my familiarity. So what will the reader's likely yeah. familiarity with it be? And of course, the less familiar we are with something, then the slower we're going to read. So the, there's it's not just the one variable of me as a person how right. quick do I read? But, and again, you're having to group the whole class. You're having to estimate the whole class. Yeah. Well, that's a challenge too that I can come back to, but there are actually three elements. So one is like how many words, right? Yeah. So that's just pretty straightforward. Duh, of course, like if you give them a lot of words, it's going to take longer to read. <laughs> but then there's what the central finding of the research is that reading rate is variable again, duh, but it's based primarily on your familiarity with the words, as you just said, Bonnie. So, and that's really important because it means that students who are quote unquote, really strong readers, like you can even have a PhD in physics, right? Who, if you give them a philosophy article or vice versa, they all of a sudden become a much, not as strong of a reader. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important for us to emphasize that when a student is new to a subject, they're going to be slower regardless of their innate skills, intelligence, ability, whatever, if, if that even exists, right? But they're going to be, if they are not familiar with the vocabulary of a discipline, they're going to go a lot slower. So I just think that's just really important. Even if you're a senior, mm -hmm. really important, grad students, really important to understand. But then the third element, apart from like how familiar are you with the words, is what is the purpose of the reading? And this gets back to the speed reading question. If the purpose of the reading is I just want my students to be generally familiar, and this is what a lot of historians are like, I want you to just have the arc of the arc of the historical narrative, right? So historians give like multiple books sometimes in a week. I mean, just huge amounts of reading. If that's the goal, then there's a different speed with which our students can probably read because we're not expecting them to really have detailed understandings of the argument. But philosophers, on the other hand, are kind of the opposite spectrum, I would say, is that they often give like two page assignments of reading because they want you to read every sentence multiple times because it's really important to understand the way each sentence connects to one another. So that's the third dimension is 
What are your purposes for the reading? Is it to skim? Is it to just basically understand or is it to engage? Because I also want my students to be writing in the margins, to be debating the text. Of course, that takes a whole lot more time because that's not just reading, it's actually engaging with the text. So, so our reading portion of the workload estimator was the most complex and, the, and also the most research-based. The other stuff is much more fuzzy and like, you know, well, well, how far it is actually, you know, it's just a really more of an estimate <laughs> than the reading. The reading is still an estimate too, but it's also more research-based and more complex. And so, um, but yeah, so, so speed reading, yes, of course you can read quickly, but the argument is that you're not going to understand as much as you think you do. One of the other interesting research about how college students read, which is related to this question, is that they, the difference between an expert reader and a college or a student reader often is that an expert reader will slow down when they don't know a word. Students often will just literally read at the same rate because they're just trying to check a box to like, I have to do this reading. So they just read, 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 even if they don't understand what they're reading, they just keep going, right? And so one of the things we, one of the ways to teach reading is to say it's really important that you actually slow down when you don't know a word or that you stop and you think and that you, you know, and then, and then when you clearly understand what's happening in a passage, you speed up there, right? Or if you see that this is a description that you or or more evidence for a claim you've already accepted, you can move through that because you're like, I don't need more evidence. I already accept that claim. Like, let's move forward. So teaching, teaching students how to do this. And often we as academics don't realize we're doing it. We don't know our skill. It's just the expert blind spot, right? Mm -hmm. We don't realize the differences between how we read and how students read. And this is where all that research on think alouds, but read alouds, where you would ask students or expert readers to actually verbally talk about what they're thinking as they're reading. If you compare faculty members to students, it's a dramatic difference. And I think it's a cool activity. I've never done it in my classes, but it would be a really cool activity to sort of highlight the way that when I read, what I do when I read, right, versus what they do. And that's partly the engagement and other things too. But, um, but it is true that students tend to not speed up and slow down, whereas the rest of us tend to vary our, our reading rate as we go. Oh, this is just fascinating. I'm so glad I asked because I didn't want to be taking this on a rabbit trail. But yeah, it sounds yeah. like this is actually really important for people to understand. And I think it's so easy for us to think about get angry, you know, to, to start yeah. ascribing things to students that is not really reasonable to ascribe in terms of, you know, they're lazy. They don't want to work hard. When I was there, I worked hard and they, they don't want to do that. And yeah. And I, I don't want to say we're bad people for doing that. I just, I want us to recognize if you read your discipline that way, it's unreasonable to expect that someone else would. And one of the things that about the calculator that for me has been so important, Betsy, I use it every time I go yeah. and, and build my syllabus, even though I've used it for the same class now, I've probably done it at least, I don't know, some of them, I've looked at it maybe more than five times on the same class. Why would you keep doing it? Every yeah. time it teaches me something. And I want to test something out on you. Yeah. <laughs> I know that, so we have to be very careful anytime as as researchers to to be ascribing cause and effect on things. So I know this is not cause and effect, but it feels like cause and effect. Sure. It feels like the less I assign of reading, the more likely it is that they'll actually do the reading. Um oh, sure. and, and it's not that it's not like if you do this it's magic sauce and all of a sudden a hundred percent of people are going to read because there's other things I couple with it to actually like what am I going what's like you said, what's the purpose of the reading? 
Yeah. And if they know in advance the purpose of the reading, then they're going to be that much like, so I'm layering multiple strategies on top. Yeah. So I can't say that, yeah. but, but yeah, I think this is so important. I think, yeah, I think um, the question of, and I think in the literature, I don't know if I like this phrase, but they refer to it as reading compliance. You know, the question of compliance, are students actually reading is a central question that all of us have. And there are a variety of hypotheses for why they might not be reading or why they, and I think one of them is they are reading, but they're just not reading well. And that's the point about teaching them how to read because they may be literally going through each on the page, each of the words. Like they, if they say, I did read, but we're like, how did you read? You don't, you, just, you don't know the main arguments you don't know, right? And so part of it is actually teaching them how to read, how much time it takes. I think that's really important. But then it's also possible that we're giving them so much that they just give up, hmm. right? And so if they think there's no chance that they're actually going to be able to do, to get it done. And also importantly, another huge pedagogical challenge that is attention is that if we're just going to read it to them when they come to class, right? If we're just going to go over it, <laughs> exactly what's in the text in class, why would they read? I wouldn't read. That's inefficient. If I know that it's going to either, either I won't come to class and I'll do the reading or I'll come to class and I won't do the reading. So it's also really important that we don't encourage them or create incentives or whatever to suggest that like, oh, you don't need to read it because I'm going to teach it to you. There's a challenge there though, because sometimes students will read it and be confused. And so then you do need to teach, help them understand the text. So there's a real interesting balance of, okay, how do I not create the conditions where they're like, well, why would I read? I know I'm going to get, I'm going to get quote unquote taught it in class versus making sure that if they were confused by something, you actually help them understand it. But I do think there are many interesting hypotheses about why students don't read or whether they're reading well. And I think the workload estimator can help on multiple fronts with that. One, it can help us give them, give them, and, and I actually am very explicit with my students about how I use the estimator and how much I expect. And I say, look, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to make sure as your instructor that I'm not giving you more work than is reasonable, but then you have to give me, you actually have to do the work right? Like this is a kind of deal we're making, right? Like that I'm going to be, if I'm doing this for you to be reasonable, then I would like you to also make sure that you do this work. So we talk about it. And then if, and then I say to them, you know, if, if it's taking you longer than I expect, I really want to learn that for a variety of reasons to improve my estimates, right? Because it's based on what my assumptions about their vocabulary or their experience with the literature, right? But it also helps if people are, are struggling in particular ways, or how can I advise individual students on that front? So um, so I do think the workload estimator can certainly improve the extent to which students come to class having done their reading and having done it well. So we I know we haven't covered the entire tool yet, but I can't wait to get to this next part, which is yeah. the tool gets used for a while. You talked about the origins of it. Yay to your husband for helping you. I didn't have the R part of the story, which I love that that little tidbit yeah. was in there, too. You don't want to do this in Excel. And, and so could you talk some about the ways in which the pandemic then had new challenges that that weren't new? They, I'm saying that they're new. They weren't new. They just nope. got newly recognized by people. Right. So in fact, and I don't know how much people know about Rice. So I was at Rice before when I made the estimator and they hadn't really moved into online teaching and learning very much. I mean, just like pinky toes and mostly in MOOCs, not really for our students and maybe some, but very little online teaching and learning had happened. So when I was making it, I wasn't, and I had never taught online before. Um, I had been at liberal arts colleges before, but those institutions had never taught online. 
But one of the things that happened with it while I was still at Rice, which is really interesting, is that we found that many of the people who were really using it were people were basically instructional designers or folks who were tasked with helping with accreditation standards for online learning. Mm. Because there's been a longstanding question, apparently, and this is I've learned over the past few years, a longstanding question of how do we figure out what the equivalent seat time, contact hours, things like that are to make sure that our online courses are comparable to -to face-to-face, but also to make sure that they meet certain accreditation standards, that they're providing enough work if it's fully asynchronous, in other words, enough and not too much, both directions, that apparently there were challenges that some faculty were doing way, assigning way too much work in online spaces, some were doing less. And as you know, which is a whole other podcast, there, it's really interesting in higher ed that online teaching and learning has a lot more oversight and a lot more um, top-down, like structure of how you design your courses than a lot of face-to-face learning does. So there's there was a whole group of people who were in charge of making sure that these courses, not the faculty, but other people, right? So that was interesting too. It was people outside of the faculty who wanted to use the tool to help the faculty or maybe force the faculty. So that was an interesting challenge for me as a faculty member. I was like, I don't know that you should be like using this tool to create policy. And some schools were doing that. They were creating policy that you had to do fit within the tool. And then I had, it was interesting. Some faculty were like, is this really validated? And like, I'm like, like, dude, it's just an estimator. It's not meant to be a scientific tool. Right. So I would have to defend in some ways the faculty on that front. But what was interesting to me was that it was very clear that there were really interesting questions about online activities and assignments. And it wasn't clear that our estimator really spoke to some of those things because it's different. Like, okay, so how much we um, didn't have the time it took to be in class in our estimator because it was out of class workload. That's the way it was designed, out of class workload. But of course, with online and asynchronous work, everything's out of class. And so it wasn't perfectly sort of captured for online or out of class versus in class, also uh, engaged, you know, or or contact hours versus non-contact hours. We didn't have anything about discussion boards or reading discussion boards. Um, So, and we had long thought about, I mean, because we've gotten tons of feedback on the estimator and there are lots of ideas to improve it. But of course, both Justin and I are super busy and it's a free tool. So we're like, well, when we get to it and then I transitioned to Wake Forest. And so just lots of moves and we didn't have a lot of time to work on it. But when the pandemic happened, it became very clear, at least at Wake Forest, because also Wake Forest hasn't had a lot of experience with online, that we, we should really go ahead and just try to update it for like basic updates for online activities, teaching and learning. So we worked with Alan Brown, who is our director, wonderful director of online education at Wake Forest to help us think about what would be the sections we would put in there that would help us and revise it slightly to what would output to help us think about online teaching and learning. So while it was true, the pandemic sort of put the fire under us <laughs> to get it done, it really is just more about making it more accessible to different kinds of courses and different kinds of delivery patterns. So the, the one big piece that comes to mind is, first of all, all of the people you've mentioned, all of the people that have used mm-hmm. either the first version or the second version of the estimator. And th- then at the same time, a lot happening in terms of students perceiving that, wow, I just got assigned a lot of busy work. And actually, I guess I don't even want to say that that was necessarily new. I certainly would hear feedback from students in terms of course evaluation. I don't mean from my classes, by the way. I am sure. perfect. No, but I mean, I, I'm in faculty development. So I would, I would, if if faculty need coaching, that's a challenge sometimes for faculty to address. And I think that there got to be, at least with the faculty that I work with, some confusion thinking that 
when you're better about making things transparent, making things more evident, like instead of just saying, read the first three chapters, <laughs> when, yes. you're, when you're actually using these strategies that might promote and reward yes. better reading, then if they tried to maybe dip their toes into them, then I think they probably felt that it was very punitive. All I get is just busy work, busy work, busy work. And part of that to me, I didn't know that you had this interest in time. And so I can't wait till the next time we get to have a mm -hmm. conversation because I have a whole yeah. new area of things I want to talk to you about. But as somebody who thinks a lot about time, too, I always in the learning management system would try to break things out such that you could look at a calendar and be able to balance your own workload as a student and go, okay, I have these things from my other classes and this and then, but I know that if I break it up too much, it terrifies people. So yeah. I can, cause in my own time management, I try to break it down to the smallest <laughs> thing of like, and how long do I think this particular thing will take me to do? Yeah. 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 It's like with budgeting. I joke about like, you can either be the type of person who does like three categories for the budget or like, I want to have a category for like packs of gum or something yes. like, right. Like, like how much detail do you want to track? Things? Yes, and yes, I'm yes. definitely the detail person, right? My yeah. husband's like, Oh God. Okay. Whatever. But yeah. So I, but I actually do think this is a really important point that what I think I mean, there's a lot of things to talk about with how students experience workload, students who had never been online and then who started taking courses online and the way faculty shifted as well. But I do think in general that when students say that the work has increased or work has increased generally, when they feel, and it's not just students, it's probably all of us, frankly, that when people think about work, and I'm sure there's research on it, I, I just don't know it, but right, it's, it's less about how many hours am I spending than it is how many things am I doing, Right. So like, oh, I used to only have to do three things. Now I have to do 50 things. And even if those 50 things are meant to stay, take the same amount of time as those three things, it feels like it's way more work than, than it was, right? And, and there's some truth to that, which is that you do have to spend some extra time to keep track of all 50 things, right? So that's one of the things I say in my blog post about hypotheses about why students are thinking workload is, was more this year is that it is true there's extra cognitive load when you have to think, okay, I now have you know, 20 assignments that are due rather than just an exam and a, and a final exam and a midterm, right? But we know that the best practice is that this is good for teaching and learning to have small assignments, low stakes. We were doing that, faculty were doing that to help students, right? But students felt that it was more, so that's one possibility is that it was actually that, we, that faculty didn't increase their workload but students just felt like it was more because there was more little things. There were more things to keep track of. And they were thinking about their work in terms of the number of things rather than in terms of the total hours they were spending. Yeah. And there's I know you and I'm so excited to link to that blog post. I I read it multiple times and there's so much there. I, it's it was all the things that were in my head. Yeah. In mushy, right, right. mushy yeah, I, ways. Think, I, I definitely think the reason that people that resonated with people is just really interesting. It was fascinating to me. It's always fascinating to me which blog posts take off. I'm sure you feel this way too about podcasts or whatever, but it was very clear that everyone was concerned about this issue. Like I even had high school, it got, it started circulating in K through 12. Mm. Like, so I had principals and other people messaging me. And so clearly very people were very concerned about this issue, but I also think we all had some of those hypotheses in mind and it was just sort of laying out what I've heard all the six. And, you know, they're all probably partially true, but just sort of saying there's a bunch of things that are probably going on, not just one thing. And, and I think people appreciated, they saw their preferred one in there somewhere. <laughs> So that also helped, right? Like, this is the thing that I think is really going on. But to see also, yeah, there's other things, too, that could be happening. 
And I think so much of it in my own teaching and also with faculty, I have the privilege to work alongside. Anytime we are ascribing negative attributes to students, mm-hmm. we're going to get ourselves into trouble. So I tried to think, and I was just, I was talking with a faculty the other day who was just disappointed. You know, she put so much passion and work into her classes. And then she discovered that her students told her that they'll never watch videos unless they have to, quote unquote, you know. And so I was like, yeah, I was trying to help her see that this is not a reflection of them and their value that they see in her as an educator and all of this and trying to help her. But so for me, I think. And, and like you, I'm I'm on the side of more wanting to break things out. I mean, that's just that's because time management. If you do that, you'll often think about time as a finite resource, and therefore, how do I get the most out of it, et cetera? Yeah. And and how do I spend my time is one way to do all that. So it isn't going to help if they look at their calendar and it's just so overwhelming. Right. So I, I'm not going to go all the way in the direction no. that I would go if it was me, but I'm not going to go all the way in the direction the other way either. So it is still probably going to look overwhelming. So one of the things I'll do is I'll actually share my screen and show them, you know, these are the things from our class that let's look at it together. Let's look at this coming week. And boy, if I saw that, you know, gosh, there's four things on Thursday, but actually I wanted to tell you what those are. And one of them, I'll have them do some retrieval practice on their own and they record mm-hmm. it using a screencasting tool. So I'll say, see this right here? Look how quick this is going to go. In fact, the first time we're doing it, I'm actually going to have you all do it right now. So just, you know, put yourself on mute and go do this. And it shouldn't take you more than five or 10 minutes because we can do retrieval practice really quick. And and then so sometimes we'll actually do the little itty bitty assignment in class so that if they have questions, they can ask them and then they can all, the any anxiety, whoo just came way down. Like that looked like a lot because there were four things on Thursday. We just did one. Now there's only three things on Thursday, you know, to help them differentiate. And then of course, if you align your points, which is something that my colleague David Rhodes uh, has really taught me is if you align your points with an estimation of how much time it will take to teach Mm -hmm. the students about that. See, see that one right there is only 50 points. That's only going to be anticipated. might take you 30 minutes to do it versus that one. And then they can see, Oh, these aren't just stakes, you know, 400 points, high stakes assignment. They're also an estimate of time. And by the way, this doesn't work perfectly in every type of a class, but in general, if they could look at it and have some sense of, that that fear could be reduced. And like you said earlier, if I think I could never do it, boy, it's a busy week. I'll never finish four assignments for Thursday. And instead, maybe I could finish four assignments. Maybe they're not that big instead of just giving up entirely and deciding, okay, I'm out this week because I just can't possibly do this all. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think one thing to come back to sort of circle back to sort of this question of efficiency, um, and how we use the workload estimators that one of the things I found the way that I used the estimator was sometimes there would be an assignment or a reading that would take a ton of time. And then I would look at it and I would think, okay, what is my learning outcome for that assignment or that reading assignment? And I would think, is there another text that I can give them that achieves the same outcome, but that is easier to read, right? Or, or an assignment. So you can do that with reading, but so what I often do with the workload estimators, I realize like, oh, I really wanted to give them this like more academic text, right? But then I realize, well, if I don't really care in that for that particular case that it's an academic text, maybe I can find a popular text that they can read that covers the same sort of ground. Same thing with assignments. So one of the things that an example I often give is like if you're giving, you're having them do presentation, 
think about what is your learning outcome for the presentation? If it's just sort of learning how to give a presentation, does it really need to be a 15 minute presentation or can it be literally a 30 second presentation where they stand and they, you know, if it's really about the physical aspect of it and the sort of eye contact and things like that. So sort of thinking the workload estimator can help you think through, is this activity that normally takes like millions of hours really worth it given my outcomes for the course, which is kind of related to what you're saying about balancing the points with how important that assignment is to the course, right? And so just it just helps you sort of think through to make sure that those things are aligned, which I think can be really helpful too for students to see, oh, if something takes a lot of time, it's really important for the course, both in terms of grades, but also in terms of learning, right? That she really wants me to learn this. And it's so hard because I think we just have a tendency to think, I mean, my all of us, we have a tendency to think it's all important. So right, of course, of course. <laughs> when, when people start to learn about universal design for learning, then they go, well, I couldn't possibly not have it be a paper and have them do a video instead because writing is just so essential for all of us, for all of our lives in every case. And it's, you know, it can't be the case because college is not only 100% about writing. There are other skills that get developed. And by the way, mm-hmm. side note, you could become a better writer even through an avenue of communicating something via video. I mean, that, that, mm-hmm. that there, these things overlap more than I think we sometimes realize. So that's such a good healthy thing for us to do constantly. Why am I assigning this? What is the expected outcome? And then, you know, how could I measure that? What does, what does done look like in this particular thing? Um, it's just such a healthy exercise, both in terms of calculating workload, but also just in terms of having meaningful education that actually matters. Yeah. I think one thing you were talking about, how you sort of introduce your students to the assignments and sort of help prepare them and manage like frame expectations. I think that's super important on this front. And one of the things I was really interested about this past year was whether there were differences between the way first-year students were thinking about workload and seniors. And I don't actually have good evidence on this. uh, We collected some data, but I don't have a good sense from our data that we collected about this. But it is interesting to me to think about once students get comfortable with college, like what they're used to, like what's the status quo in terms of how much work is usually required, which that's important. Like how much work do they actually have to do to do well in the course? If things change on them, that's going to be obviously upsetting because they've set expectations. But first year students come in often thinking like, oh, college is really hard. Like what, what is going to be expected of me? So I think there are interesting questions of whether, well, at least anecdotally, we heard a lot more from our juniors and seniors who were upset about workload than we did from our first year students. I don't know for sure about like the data on that, but it just is an interesting hypothesis because one thing that I think we should talk about maybe further is this hypothesis that, that has been around before the pandemic. And I think we've confirmed it here too, which is that students on average, on average, expect to spend about two hours per week per credit hour in a, in a traditional semester, right? Faculty expect on average about three. Right. So that's 50 percent more. There's just that. And that's that was in the literature before. And I think part of what is interesting about what happened is like never before on a massive scale have we taught faculty about best practices for teaching and learning (laughs) than we did this year. And so part of what we were teaching them was you can't just expect students to do the work. You actually have to hold them accountable for doing it. Like you actually have to turn it in or you have to have them ask questions about it. So I think I actually think this is very much a thing that that a plausible explanation, which is that what happened this year was that for the first time in mass, faculty were actually 
holding students accountable for the three hours a week rather than two. And that is a 50% increase, which is a huge increase, right? That's a huge, students are right to say that's a huge increase if they could get by and do well, maybe even get A's by doing only two hours a week, including class time. That would be including class time. But then they're now suddenly expected, they have to do three to, in order to get, to do as well as they had done in the past, right? That's a, that's a big change. So I think that's part of, and I'll be fascinated to know what happens going forward. Do faculty keep holding students accountable now that they've learned this? Mm. Uh, are students still going to feel like the workload is overwhelming? I just don't know. I don't know. I'm laughing so hard at myself because <laughs> two hours versus three doesn't sound big until you say <laughs> until yeah. you say 50 percent. I go, that's really big. <laughs> well, it adds up if you over because it's either, you know, it's either 30 hours a week or 45 hours a week. That's uh-huh. an additional 15 hours a week. Yeah. Right. Yep. Absolutely. 15 hours a week. They could do so many things with 15 hours a week, whether they're working, whether they're with family, whether they're partying, <laughs> like there's a lot of things they can do with 15 hours a week. And if you went from 30 to 45, like in the middle of a pandemic, and that's why they were mad, right? Because mm-hmm. they're like, it's a pandemic. Yeah. All of a sudden we now have this extra work. Yeah. But we actually surveyed our students in the spring and asked them about like how much time they were spending and then faculty, how much they expected. And it's the exact same thing you would see pre-pandemic. Students were spending, expected, we asked them also what they expected, right? You know, students expected or ended up spending about two hours per credit hour, faculty expected three. It's exactly that thing. So, so I do think it was partially, you know, pandemic is stressful. Everything's harder, right? That's also part of it. There were more little things also part of it, but this issue of suddenly now you're being expected to spend that extra time is worth all of us thinking about, you know, why do, what is the standard that we expect of students? Do we expect them? And actually we found some interesting variation among our faculty on that front. That we never talk about that. And I think now in new faculty orientation, I'm going to talk about this. Like, what are the expectations for how many hours students should spend out of class in your class, right? There's been that sort of Carnegie unit or like a standard like rule of thumb, like, you know, two hours out of class for every hour in class. But I, I assume most faculty knew that. But actually, I've heard from our faculty now as we talk about it more that some are like, some had a view that you should have more hours for upper level classes than for lower level, which was interesting to me because like, oh, seniors are supposed to spend a lot more time on their classes than for freshmen. I don't know if that's, true, but, but, but that was their approach, which was interesting. Like they'd never been, there'd never been explicit conversations about it in the departments. And so why do we expect faculty to know what is the standard? And so I do think it is a, again, I think we try to, I think in the United States, we or probably not just the United States, we just try to pretend that time doesn't exist and we can have infinite amounts of it, but we all need to be talking more about time, whether it's our labor or other things like just there's, it's a finite amount of time and we cannot be expecting students who are working 40 hours a week to be putting in this amount of time and still finish in four years, right? Like that, that there's just, something has to give. And so I think there's policy issues associated with this too. I mean, it's just a really interesting, it sounds like a silly kind of minor thing thinking about time and, but it, it actually has huge equity implications moving forward too. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations, and I have three of them. One is I'd like you to go check out the two versions of the course estimator tool that we've been talking about. If you've never heard of it before, never used it before, I think, I don't know what you think, Betsy, probably a good starting point would be the first one. I mean, just to, especially if you're yeah. particularly interested in the reading 
How long does it take? And there's a blog post that goes along with it, actually, that sort of introduces it that I wrote when I introduced it. So that might be helpful, too, to get a sense of how it works. Yeah. So I'll link to all of this in the show notes. But so I recommend that you look at the first one. I recommend you look at the second one. Maybe you didn't even know it existed. So go check out the second one as well and see if it might suit your needs. And it has more things in it, as Betsy said, around other types of assignments a little bit beyond reading that will help you estimate that workload. And then the third thing does have to do with time. I'm kind of loving that I have a theme going here. (laughs) So a lot of times when people talk to me about productivity, they think that there's just like a missing, if only they knew about a particular application, like what's the best application. And then you get into like, well, do you use a Mac or do you use a PC and all that? So I'd like to introduce a general category of applications that people may not realize exist out there. And then I'll tell you the one that I'm using, but it's less interesting than just that, you know, this kind of a tool exists. So here's the challenge. When I am talking to someone like Betsy and she shares all of these things that are making my mind explode. And then I go to put the show notes together in the past. It would be a pretty high friction thing, first of all, because I get so excited and want to read every single word of every single thing that she just referred to. So you can imagine that I have to stop myself from doing that. And we've talked about before digital bookmarks so that I can kind of cue them up for future reference and all of that. But even if I disciplined myself and didn't read every word of every resource that she recommends today, I still would have a lot of laborious effort to, okay, I got to go type in the name of the thing. What is it that she just recommended? And then go copy the link and then paste it over and then do it the next one and the next one. And the more great tools that someone like Betsy recommends, the longer it's going to take me to take all of those links and those things and pass them on to others. In this case, in the form of show notes, but it could be out to our faculty. I send a monthly update um, to them as well. So there's a really great category of tools that you can just have a bunch of tabs open on your website. So I'll have all of these links when, when I'm done researching and finding all the things that Betsy talked about. Then I just click on a button up on on my toolbar. In this particular case, the tool is called tab space, but there are a lot of these kinds of link collectors. And when I do it, it brings up a set of options. Do I want to save this gazillion links (laughs) all, all at once and close all of those tabs, which is what I want to do most of the time? I don't, there's no need to keep them open once they're captured in a space. And then it's almost like having an ever expanding list of links. So since I started doing this uh, two or three months ago, I've got all the past episodes. So it'll say T-I-H-E and then the number of it and then it'll say Betsy Berry. And then if I want to go back and open them all up again, I can do that all with one. They're all saved there in this lovely, lovely tool. And then I can, once I have saved them, I can go and name the thing. And I just had a great conversation yesterday about social annotation with someone Mm -hmm. at Hypothesis. We've talked a lot about Hypothesis before. And speaking of that kind of conversation, I'm going to be able to go back and I can just click. I can I can share all of these links and the links will be there along with the text. I could do it as HTML. I can do it just as text. I can do it as a language called Markdown, which is uh, what a lot of us use for plain text writing. I mean, all kinds of ways to share the information and keep it growing, be able to reference to it. So it's a nice combination with a bookmarking tool, a great way to save time. So those are my recommendations for today. And Betsy, I'm going to pass it over to you for yours. Yeah. So actually, uh, so I came prepared with three, but I now have a new one now that you just uh, raised a category as we were talking about time. So if any of you are curious, some people ask me after my blog post about what software I used 
to time track. And I used a free software well, free for certain levels I've called toggle. Mm. So it's T O G G L. Um, and it's been, since I used it, it's been bought out by somebody else, I think, or merged or something. Maybe it's called something else like toggle something else, but it's pretty cool, pretty easy to do. Or just, if you don't want to use that tool, use another tool. And I, I basically did it for a semester because of course it takes time to time track. <laughs> so I don't do it now all the time, but it was a really useful thing for me to do just to get a snapshot for a semester as I was thinking about my future work balance, um, life balance. So in terms of the things I came prepared to talk about, sort of disconnected intentionally, sort of dis, in some ways disconnected from our conversation we've been having. Um, so when I, but it's about, te- it's somewhat related to my teaching. So when I get to teach, uh, when I'm not leading the teaching center, I finally get a chance to teach. I, my background is in ethics. I'm trained as an ethicist and I teach my favorite course. And my most meaningful course I teach is a course on sexual ethics or eth- the ethics of intimacy. And I haven't done it in a while, but I'm going to be doing it in the spring. And so I've been thinking a lot about those issues and reading various things. And so I have some recommendations that I think anyone who's in higher ed, because I designed that course to specifically think about not just sexual ethics broadly, but the sexual ethics of sex on campus and how our students navigate sexuality, relationships, and intimacy on campus. So I have some recommendations there. So one serious, one fun, one something in between. So the serious book, um, but it's just so wonderful. And Sarah Cavanaugh actually introduced me to this book. One of the best books I've read in years is called Sexual Citizens, Sex, Power, and Assault on Campus by uh, Jennifer Hirsch and Seamus Khan, who are sociologists and a, and a public health uh, expert in Columbia. And they do this like multi-year ethnography, social scientific study of students at Columbia. It is about assault. There's conversations about assault, but it's not just about assault. It's actually the way they frame this as it's a book about the way in which students design their sexual projects and the way in which their communities shape their sexual projects. So it's just a fabulously nuanced, wonderful book that I'm going to use in my class for my students as they're thinking about their relationships uh, moving forward. Now, the fun one, if you haven't seen this on Netflix, I highly recommend the TV show Sex Education. If you haven't had a chance to watch that, so wonderful, so lovingly done. Uh, could be a really useful thing if you have teenagers to show as well, but just to think about the nuances of, of sexuality that we don't often talk about and why we should talk about it. And the, the, uh, the main character's mom is a sex therapist, which is kind of a funny part of it. <laughs> and so he's like embarrassed that his mom is a sex therapist. Um, but then, and then in between, there just came out yesterday. So this is what got me thinking about these recommendations. Um, I, or at least I just read it yesterday is there is a new essay in Harper's Magazine. It's an excerpt from another journal by the philosopher Agnes Callard called Breaking Points. And it's about the ethics of breaking up. So she basically argues that we don't often talk about breaking up as a moral issue. (laughs) It's like you're either, you should do it or you shouldn't do it. And there's no like theorizing about like, that's an unethical breakup. So she kind of talks about like ghosting. Should you just break it off with people? Is that ethical? You know, and talks about divorce. Super interesting, really funny as well, the way she writes. And so I highly recommend this. And I'm probably going to start my course with this article, but I think it's 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 good for my students, but I think any of you will love it because it's it's a pretty funny, really thoughtful piece about um, how we think about our relationships and the ethics of relationships. Oh my gosh, I just love this. And I had mentioned that in my conversation yesterday about hypothesis, I get to have some fun experimenting with how to potentially integrate it in with this other reading service that I'm using. And I needed yeah. something fun to play with and annotate. And so you just gave me that. That's so great. It's going to help me. Uh, I'm about to take some time off coming up. And so I'm just super excited about getting to play a little bit with that as well. Oh, my gosh. These are such great recommendations. I always love whenever we go way off of whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just so it'll be fun. Do something different. But, but still connected to students and higher ed. So I think your audience will be interested in it, too. 
Oh, for sure. How could they not be? Well, thank you so much for coming back. I am now so excited that we have our next topic for the next time you come back. If if I'm going to be so bold. (laughs) I'm so excited about being able to explore time with you more broadly and, and the next opportunity. And thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Yes, I appreciate it. We love your podcast, Bonnie. Oh, thank you. I've got Hannah Stahoviak here to help me with words of thanks. Thank you, Betsy Berry, for being a guest on Teaching in Higher Ed. We're so grateful you were able to join in today's conversation. And for those of you who are listening but who have yet to subscribe to the weekly Teaching in Higher Ed update, I think you should subscribe and so does someone else. Subscribe to Bonnie's Stahoviak's channel, also known as Mommy's channel. <laughs> Head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much for listening.